Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Green Blob Podcast, your weekly digest of climate change and nature-related news in UK current affairs. Welcome again, Zenzo. How are you? I'm well, thanks. I'm well. Yeah, glad to be back. Fantastic. Unfortunately, Will will not be joining us this week as he is working for the National Trust, but onwards and upwards. Mm -hmm. So I want to start just quickly mentioning the Earthshot Prize. Um, Zenzo, have you heard of the Earthshot Prize? No. No, I haven't heard of that before. So it's a prize uh, that kind of references to the moonshot ambition of the 1960s in America when President Kennedy pledged to get a man on the moon, but it's kind of the same thing but with climate change. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Prince William was the one who kind of, the kind of key figure behind it. And it's meant to incentivize kind of innovation to combat climate change and environmental issues. And it awards £1 million to five different projects every year. So. Winners from last year were Costa Rica, kind of for their successful reforesting program. Yeah. Uh, two friends from the Bahamas who are growing corals and kind of re, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, restoring yeah, yeah, that yeah. kind of restoring environment. environment yeah. uh, this year, there's kind of the first UK finalist, not per hard material, uh, mm-hmm. which they make packaging from seaweed and plants as right. an alternative to single-use yeah. plastics. It's, it's quite yeah, good yeah, scheme. It's, it's a good range of projects as well that are under consideration. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. not to put you on the spot, but I wanted to ask you, what yeah. is your million-dollar idea to help combat uh, environmental issues? Well, um, I think um, I've, I've become quite convinced by, you know, what's called citizen science initiative, right? So, okay. just, you know, empowering and helping local communities to you know, to come up with ideas of their own and, you know, to, to keep track of what's going on environmentally. It basically says you put money into listening to what people's ideas yeah. are because they've got really good ideas about their own environment. And um, if if they just get the right support, um, then, you, you know, some some homegrown solutions to, to yeah. these problems can come up. Yeah, absolutely. It may not be technological, but yeah, <laughs> I think that I think that's considering I put you on the spot with that. That's a very, very good answer. Luckily, I, 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 I've been reading up with it over the last few days, so I've, I've yeah, yeah. Feel, feel quite convinced by yeah, it. You had it there in the front of your head. Yeah, yeah, okay. fair enough. Well, and for uh, plenty more million-dollar ideas, Green Blobbers, on with this episode of... The Green Blob. The attack on nature is real. I don't want to just stop while I want to keep... We should be very proud of the cleanliness of British politics. And today I'm going to be pouring actual liquid human onto a Captain Tom Moore. There are the gravy train for heaven's sake. He got trounced by the former Prime Minister, who herself got beaten by a lettuce. It's the tofu-eating karate. We must use this opportunity to create a more equal world. The Green Blob. So, some breaking news for you green blobbers. This morning, the news kind of came out that Sizewell C, a new nuclear power plant that was kind of going to be kind of uh, happening in Suffolk, is now potentially being reviewed and scrapped. So, it's a £20 billion project that was going to be supplying up to 7% of the UK's total electricity needs. So, quite a bit. Thankfully, I've been able to pull some strings and on the podcast, we've got Neil McCauley, who has over 30 years of experience being a lawyer, uh, now with a focus on environmental law and issues. Uh, Welcome to the pod, Neil. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. No problem at all. Uh, So I just wanted to start off um, with a broader question around nuclear power and how will that kind of help us in the cost of living crisis we're in right now? Well, the short answer, I think, is it not going to help us at all. In fact, 
quite the opposite is going to hurt us. And that's um, evident from the fact that the government uh, has passed legislation, I should say, uh, not this is not just conservative policy, it's also supported uh, by the Labour Party. Okay. They've passed legislation to enable them to add more money to your electricity bills uh, to build nuclear power stations. So that's taxpayers and the everyday person paying for this very expensive project. Yes, it is. And, and you're right to say it's the everyday person because you might be surprised to know that the large electricity consumers are going to be exempt uh, from the extra levy. So people like you and me, as the ordinary electricity bill payer, uh, are going to be saddled with this extra cost. And there is no, there is no opt-out. You can't say, well, I don't actually want nuclear power in my electric mix. I'd rather have renewable. You can't do that. You're stuck with it. Okay. Oh, okay, that's really interesting to learn about. And so I suppose I wanted to kind of zone in on Sideswell C more specifically and kind of reading and preparing for the podcast this morning. I read that uh, the project was rejected by the local kind of planning inspectorate because of <coughs> concerns around sustainable water supplies because, of course, nuclear reactors require vast amounts of water to cool them. But once again, the government <laughs> ignored expert advice and kind of went ahead with this anyway. So I just wondered what was... What are the implications for this for local people in Suffolk, um, which I know is, is where you live? There's actually two of these going on. One, one is sort of quite well underway already uh, at Hinkley, which is down in the southwest. But the second one of these new types, these are a new type of nuclear reactor. Uh, that is going to be at Sizewell, so Sizewell C, sitting alongside the um, decommissioned Sizewell A and B. In terms of water, it's quite interesting because I think um, a lot of people misunderstand uh, the nature of uh, water demand by nuclear power stations. But fundamentally, Sizewell C is going to suck in water from two different sources. Uh, one from the sea, uh, but it also needs fresh water. It can't, can't survive without fresh water. Uh, and the figures are quite astonishing. Just when it's up and operational, it's going to need 2 million litres of water, fresh water per day. And it, is, it simply isn't available. As anyone who lives in East Anglia knows, this is one of the dry, we've had a very dry summer. It's one of the driest parts of the UK. So given that nuclear power stations have such a high demand for fresh water, it seems kind of insane uh, to build it in the driest part of the country. And the water companies have simply said, and the planning inspector quite rightly uh, found, that there, there isn't sufficient national water supply. So they've looked around, they've, they've, at one point we're talking about just sucking it out of the River Waveney, um, but there isn't a water supply. Uh, the water companies have said we haven't got the water, uh, so unless we want to increase uh, the amount of um, you know, restrictions on water that we have, already, um, then, you know, it seems folly to go ahead with this project. And I suppose this really ties into the climate crisis, because it, it makes me think back to the summer where, you, like you said, we had those long periods of drought, we had lots of wildfires in East Anglia and, you know, across the country. And so potentially draining these sources of water inland, these fresh water supplies, you know, could, I suppose, could that exasperate kind of those kind of more intense heat waves well, we are experiencing and those, those droughts? Yes, I mean, you know, you've only got to spend a few minutes uh, looking on Google. Countries around the world where rivers have run dry, 
So unless unless we want to see more of that in the UK, and I would suggest we don't, build power energy producing plants uh, that don't require water consumption. The other point is the location. So in terms of uh, water, it actually requires, as I said, two different types of water. One is the seawater to cool the plant down um, because nuclear, nuclear power plants um, don't produce 100% of electricity from the uh, reaction that is produced. It's about something about 30% of the nuclear reaction is converted to electricity and the rest shoots into the sea as hot water. Uh, because it has to cool the reactor down. So there's massive amounts of hot water are going to be pumped into the into the sea at Sizewell. Um, and um, I think, as you know, this is going to have a massive impact on the, on the uh, sea life and the creatures that live in the sea. So the, this headline that basically says, you know, the nuclear reactor at Sizewell Sea and this, this hot water that's being produced could kill an estimated 804 million fish every year, which you know, is, is a colossal number. That's a huge ecological yeah. impact. I don't think minds have even really been turned to this question. Uh, to be honest, I've, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time trying to find sort of sensible answers. Um, the, the plant at Hinkley gives us some indication and they've run into trouble at Hinkley uh, because they're now concerned about the damage that the power station is going to cause to the River Severn estuary. Uh, and um, I think, you know, that, that sort of flags up to me that no proper research has been done uh, as to what the impact of, the, of this massive quantity of hot water coming out of these nuclear power stations does to your local um, coastal uh, seawater area and the, and the wildlife that mm. lives on it. Let's not forget that Sizewell Sea is bang next door to uh, internationally recognised uh, wildlife reserve at Minsmere and the, the RSPB are quite rightly up in arms about this project hmm. uh, and strongly opposed to it because they fear it's going to cause damage uh, to the um, to the wildlife reserve at Minsmere. Mm. And I, I, well, and I suppose the driving factor behind kind of the decision this morning to put this project under review isn't kind of this environmental impact. It is still kind of the economic picture of the country at the moment. So it still seems to be something they're not considering. Yeah. Uh, I just wondered, Zenzo, did you have any questions? Danielle? Yeah, I was, I was actually going to um, ask you a question around, you know, the motivation behind it, but I'm glad you're touching on, you know, the economic sense or, you know, the, the drive. Um, I think what, what I'd like to hear from you, I mean, if you're aware of it is, you know, what are the social reactions, you know, in the area to this? Are there any movements forming? Are people, um, you know, making an effort to be heard about it? And what is the response, if you've observed any, from, you know, government about that? Because the economic sense, clearly they are basing their actions on that. But um, what's happening, you know, in the community? You know, are they actually coming up against this? Yeah, I, I would say... Uh, that it's probably divided. There's a lot of people are pro-nuclear, and, and there's, you know, a lot of people are opposed to nuclear. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm personally opposed to nuclear uh, per se, as a lawyer would say, or, or you know, I, I object to Hinkley as much as I do to Sizewell, hmm. because I, I think nuclear is just not the right way to go for a whole host of, of reasons. Yeah. Um, but Sizewell in particular, 
is a, is a bad spot for a nuclear for a nuclear power station of this nature. Yeah. Um, so the, I'm not. I'm a. I'm a supporter of stop Sizewell C. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not a spokesman, and these comments I'm making are just purely my own. So mm -hmm. I don't represent them. But there's two organisations. There's TASC and Stop Sizewell C. They've got a good membership. We've had uh, marches um, from Leyston uh, down to the beach. Uh, we've had a huge uh, sort of parade along the beach. Um, my my concern, uh, if anything, is that uh, the the average age of the uh, stop size well uh, contingent is perhaps a little too old and a, a little bit too much grey hair, and I feel slightly saddened uh, that there isn't a greater sort of show of, of youth and and uh, younger people yeah. um, who who can be bothered to come out and make their opinion known. But it's they're, they're very peaceful organizations because it's quite sandy down there we can't glue ourselves to anything um so yeah. it, it's it's a very well it's a very well humored uh peaceful uh, objection you know objection uh to what we think is is a misplaced uh, project mm. and the, the problem is for me the problem is that you know it's your generation that's going to end up uh, copying it uh, with with size well see um, more than mine I mean it, it takes years for these things to be built they always have massive cost overruns so don't you know I wouldn't necessarily believe anything you read about the cost at the moment um, and the government has yeah the government's got a, uh, a huge problem because it doesn't have very much money and it doesn't seem to me that the in, there are investors rushing forward uh, to plough in the necessary billions to build this, so then that leaves, you know, the public. And are they are they going to then force more money out of the public at this time to build these huge projects? And it looks like there's some some doubt. Uh, there's no there's no decision yet that size or will be scrapped. I certainly hope it is. Uh, but um, yeah, I think the sadly it's the financial pressures. Uh, that seem to be, you know, probably the ones that will knock it out, um, rather than uh, sort of the, whether this is actually long-term sustainable mm -hmm. uh, project. Okay. Well, that's that's fascinating, Neil. Thank you very much for your insight today. Uh, hopefully, if and when it does get scrapped, uh, we can have you back on the pod maybe to talk oh, about that right. and the local I'll be, reaction. I'll be absolutely delighted. I'll be, yeah, I'll be more than happy to do so. So, thank you both very much for uh, inviting me on to your uh, your podcast. No, thank you, Neil. Thank and you. Um, yeah. yeah, we'll speak to you soon. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Wow, what what an interesting discussion. Um, any quick reflections on that before we move on? Yeah, um, really good insights from from Neil, um, and you know, it just got me thinking about you know, you know, what's called the policy mix when it comes to decisions such as these, you know, governments and you know, policymakers in different forms, you know, they usually look at this from either an economic, environmental, or a social point of view, and um, yeah, it, it it goes back to to Neil's point where he says, you know, it's quite sad that what seems to be stopping this is the lack of investment. So it's really the economic you know, uh, incentives or disincentives that are, are, are slowing things down. But I think he was right, you know, where are the young people? Where's that social pressure? 
um, and is it mobilizing well enough? Um, and, and is it yeah. considering the environmental impacts of the project enough? Are they being valued enough? Then, uh, yeah, that is a good question. Plus, you know, the the way you described them, you know, the potential harm to fish life and, you know, various forms of life that depend on this water, you know, uh, pumping hot water into the ocean does not at all seem it like a good thing. <laughs> yeah, it? no. So, like yeah, that should be enough to, you know, theoretically it must make people want to get up and do something about it. So it's how to, you know, to trigger that interest around it, yeah. Absolutely. And speaking of young people and activism having a voice, uh, we're now going to speak about the Just Stop Oil protests, mm-hmm. which have kind of been uh, all over London and yep. causing a lot of disruption. So for those who don't know, Just Stop Oil is an activism group with a clear message demanding the UK government to end all new, new oil and gas. And they have made a lot of noise, caused a lot of disruption to everyday people's lives. Uh, so I wanted to just discuss with uh, you, the Green Bobbers and Zenzo, um, about this kind of more extreme method, as some might see it, of climate activism uh, and protest. So, but just to give the listeners uh, some context first, so just stop or we'll have thrown soup on Van Gogh's sunflowers, mm-hmm. although I should say the painting wasn't damaged, it was protected by glass. They're throwing cake on a waxwork of King Charles at Madame de Swords that brought Queen Elizabeth bridge by attaching themselves to cabling some you know 200 feet above the ground mm-hmm. quite extraordinary and more recently they've sprayed paint over the bank of england the home office and other government buildings as well as luxury car dealers such as ferrari bentley and aston martin to name a few mm-hmm. but i think this paints yeah. quite a clear picture of the level of disruption they're causing as well as how strongly they feel about this issue so do you yeah. think this is an effective way to increase action on climate change and communicate the severity of the situation? Yeah, so I've been in two minds about it. Um, My my first reaction when I first saw it happen, I thought, you know, this is, you know, they're they're occupying a privileged space where they can do this and, you know, people will turn to them and actually think about what's making them do it. You know, um, whereas if it were different you know, group of people, Um, let's say if it was mostly black people, you know, just to put it out there, you know, some of these acts could have been really looked at and viewed as, well, you know, damage to property, you know. So that was my first reaction. But, you know, the more it happened and I also started paying attention, I thought, you know, um, they're not acting in a vacuum or some sort of isolation. It is a response to a failure. And they... I, I believe they've they, they've been pushed to a point where they think that to be heard or to truly communicate the importance and severity of what's before us, and particularly you know to the people that actually make decisions that affect us all, they have to speak and act in in notable ways, and that that that's I would say is is how you know how they're doing it. They are they are doing everything to be visible and it's about putting yourself in places where people don't expect you or that that actually make people feel a certain way that they will turn to you and ask what 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 in the world are you doing and when they ask that you they then say we are acting to stop oil so i yeah yeah but, but yeah of course <laughs> absolutely and that disruption does kind of bring light to the issue mm. um but like you say does it bring light the issue in the right way and mm-hmm. is that kind of movement 
representative and diverse enough. Because like you said, yeah. if someone of colour was a part of that movement, would yeah. it be viewed differently? Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to play you this clip of Paul Watson, a political commentator with over 1.2 million followers on Instagram. Um, and I'll just play you a part of the clip, it's only 10 minutes long, but it, it's, and because it's derogatory, uh, how it, you know, it has a lot of views and it's probably quite representative of the frustration that some people feel about these protests. No damage to the painting whatsoever. Here's the point. They don't care about enlisting the support of the general public because they don't need it. The establishment they claim to oppose is already enacting everything they're calling for. Net zero, banning petrol and diesel cars, carbon tax social credit scores, obliterating livestock farmers. It's all being rammed through already. Just Stop Oil, an extinction rebellion, a shock troops for globalist technocrats already enforcing the same agenda. They're not there to persuade the general public, they're there to terrify them into compliance, defacing the King Charles waxwork at Madame Tussauds with chocolate cake. Yeah. Very interesting clip. Um, yeah, clearly frustrated with the method being used. Um, he seems convinced that um, what, you know something is being done by the institutions that Stop Oil is trying to get the attention of, um, and you know he doesn't believe that this is how it should be done, right? And I, I like the phrase right at the end, you know, terif- terrifying the public, you know, into compliance. Um, yeah, really interesting. Uh, I, I, for, for me, it kind of <laughs> raised that question around, you know, I'm not sure the list he kind of made of all the government's action on climate yeah. change isn't, was entirely accurate. But, you know, some of the points were valid, you know, banning petrol cars, and, yeah. you know, scaling up renewable, etc. Um, and I suppose it brings the question, you know, a lot of people feel like the government are already tackling this, this issue and doing a sufficient amount. But, you know, what, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that um, what motivate such type of protest um is potentially the lack of you know uh visible progress um in the time that potentially they're expecting to see changes because he is right right i mean there are things taking place um or or in place to you know to to, to really try and um yeah move away from oil and and gas uh as as has been mentioned but um yeah i, I would think that protests such as these just are not satisfied with progress and um, they don't trust that there's there's genuine commitment to it and um, yeah I, I think then they, they, they use very visible means mm. to to uh, achieve their ends um, whether that's terrifying the public into compliance yeah that's you know it's, yeah, there are many ways to see it isn't well, it? well I suppose I think that's the critical question, mm. question we're trying to answer is does this more disruptive uh, form of protest uh, have the desired effect in terms of communicating climate change as you know, they appear to alienate large poignant, uh, portions of the general public and as other people have put it, kind of taint the whole climate movement and make it more exclusive. You know, last week we were talking about inclusivity in the climate yeah. movement. Um, however, I, I, you know, there, I do think there is a place for them to a certain extent. Mm. But it's, it's, like you said, it's, it's a very balanced kind of nuanced uh, issue but i i I want to play you this next clip uh of the newsnight interview which has been doing the rounds on twitter of uh, phoebe Plummer, who is the just stop oil activist who threw soup on van gogh's sunflowers um phoebe Plummer, do you think you are taking enough people with you when it comes to the kind of direct protest whether it's blocking roads or or spraying paint on a famous painting you know, this isn't a popularity contest. We're making change. But are you bringing people with you? 
Are you bringing people with you? Thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I'm really grateful to be here and have this discussion. It needs to happen. But as journalists, are you doing enough? You know, they, this is the biggest crisis that humanity has ever faced. You make time to report on the sport every day. Why aren't you telling people how bad it's going to get? Why aren't you out on the streets with us? Because I admire your optimism and I admire you telling people that we have to go towards a renewable future. I agree with you. But quite frankly, it's not happening in policy. So civil resistance is the only chance we have left to get the radical change we need in the timescale we have left. Okay. To, to ensure that I have a future, to ensure that millions of people in the global south don't keep dying. 33 million people are displaced in Pakistan right now. And, and governments are still pushing ahead with these fossil fuel licenses. Okay. That is murderous. Phoebe Plummer, thank you very much for coming on News Network. Thank you so much for having wow. me on. Wow, when you listen to that perspective, um, you, know, you can tell it's a very emotive, personal yeah. issue. And you mm. know, some of the language around that is you know, very strong. Um, you know, but it's, it, the climate crisis is being politicised, understandably. But, you know, it is essentially apolitical in the sense that, you know, scientists have said mm-hmm. there can be no new oil and gas if we want to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees, which, of course, is the point at which scientists have said if we pass that, certain tipping points and climate change, generally speaking, will become a much bigger threat. Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to ask you, how does that make you feel about these protests? Does it justify the actions in your eyes? Um... I think it's it's right to um, bring the urgency of the crisis, you know, to the fore. Um, it, it, it's important that they get a platform. And, you know, you, when, when you look at that clip, you need to ask yourself, I think, would they have got the same audience without their actions or, you know, um, um, uh, or uh, not? Absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, would she have got that Newsnight interview there we without go. that, regardless? And, you know, it makes a really salient important yeah. point. And you've yeah. seen people on Twitter, journalists, mm. saying, actually, this is something I've been thinking about. And I think she's right. Yeah. Of course, there's the other side to that. But, you know, mm. it, it's a very important discussion that we do need to be having, which we haven't been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it, it, um, it does have an alienating effect in the sense that, first of all, not everyone has the, you know, the means and the privilege to act in the ways that they're acting. Um, Fair and fine, I I, I accept that. But I also look at them as privileged people who are using their privilege for some good, right? It's, Mm. I've I've always had that, uh, um, uh, you know, thought that, yeah, we we talk about privilege and how some people don't have it, and you know, you know, just the imbalance in society when people use it exclusively for, for themselves. But, I've 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 come to view privilege differently when I see people using their privilege for genuine social good. And in this sense, they might not reach all their objectives all at once. Uh there may be many criticisms as to their methods and how they're doing it, but what they're doing is putting a conversation on the table. How it grows from there is everyone else's responsibility. So I may not be part of that protest. I may not or anyone else be, you know, interested in in, in protesting in that way. But what I am interested in is, you know, the cause and what happens when people start listening, when the right people that need to listen start to take that sort of action seriously. Because if they open those doors, if they cause a, um, or they lead to a, uh, a a national or a global conversation, you know, about this, uh, you know, 
before or even outside of the usual, you know, global events when we, you know, start talking about such things. If they push to have that conversation, even when it's least convenient, then that's how I believe we, we actually can push for change. So there's a place for this type of, of, of protest. We won't all be a part of it, but in terms of movements, I would say let's not all expect to act the same way. But if we're all of the same objectives... You need the diversity yeah, of yeah, approaches yeah, to the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a hard one to accept. I know a lot of people might think, hang on, you know, you're talking about some very privileged people and, you know... you know, but also the disruption to everyday people's lives. You know, there's, yes. a, there's a, a clip of one man who's like, I'm trying to go and pick up my kids from school. Yeah. You're stopping yeah, me from doing yeah, that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I do feel for those. And, you know, this could be either one of us. You could be on your way to college, you know, and, you know, be disrupted by yeah. them. Um, but, um, yeah, if it's, you know, if it's once off and if it's loud enough and it's in our faces and it causes, you know, conversations such as these on platforms, on media platforms, then that one event in 12 months, I think is... It's you know for the for, for what we're trying to achieve with climate change, I think it yeah. should be worth and for the, for the scale the, yeah. of the problem. And yes, how urgently. We yes, need, it's just that, one yeah. thirty-minute delay to an hour uh, from where you're trying to get to, but that leads them to get onto a national platform. Yes, they are privileged, but they are talking about things that affect us all globally. Let's use the momentum they're creating and and run with it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Fantastic. Yeah. No, very, very interesting analysis. Uh, thank you. And that kind of leads us into the next and final segment of this episode of The Green Blob, which is uh, so uh, COP27 starts mm-hmm. on Sunday. For those who don't know what that is, that's the Conference of Parties, and it's a big global convention of climate scientists, policymakers, uh, and leaders. So, you know, such as Rishi Sunak, who wasn't going, was maybe going to go, and now he's U turned. And he is going. So it's this big coming together of a global stock take, essentially, mm-hmm. on how we're doing on climate change and how can we do more. Um, and so we have an interview with Tara Bryer from Climate Outreach talking about how best to effectively talk about climate change with your friends, with your family, with your colleagues, as someone who might not be an expert in that imposter syndrome. But yeah, yeah it is still obviously important that we all talk about this. So... Just have a listen. The Green Blob. Joining us on the pod this week is a climate change communication expert from Climate Outreach. Welcome to the pod, Tara. Hello. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. No problem. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. I'm a little bit cold, which is a change because it's been unseasonably warm this month. Yeah. So I should really welcome the coldness, shouldn't I? Now? Yeah. Well, seasonably I, cold. <laughs> I, I know what you mean. There is that part of me which is kind of like, oh, I'm upset it's cold and raining, but I'm also quite happy because it's been weirdly warm. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like, this is normal. This is normal. Enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, start off uh, by telling us briefly kind of what climate outreach is, like, who are you and kind of what, what do you guys do? Yes, of course. So Climate Outreach, um, we're based in Oxford in the UK, but we have a growing team of staff all over the world. Um, and our aim really is to help people of all ages, faiths, nationalities, all sides of the political spectrum to really understand climate change in a way that's relevant for them so that they can feel part of the climate story and feel like they can take action on climate change themselves. 
And we do this by working with social scientists, we're social scientists ourselves and, and climate change specialists. And we delve into the social science research, some of which is our own, to really understand and reveal how to and how especially not to communicate effectively about climate change. And so this research is extremely valuable, but a lot of it stays locked up in journals that's quite inaccessible to the non-academic. So what we try and do is try to break out into those journals and, and make these insights as accessible as possible to practitioners, communicators and organisations who really want to engage their audiences on climate change. And so we work with NGOs, non-governmental organisations, grassroots organisations and local and national government. And I specifically work with climate experts in, in academia to help them kind of step outside of their own spaces and, and really meaningfully engage with different audiences on, on climate change. Fantastic. So it's very much bridging that gap between kind of the scientists and the expert knowledge and kind of trying to make that accessible to the general public. Yes, bridge bridge is a really good word for that and, and building that kind of common cause across different audiences so they feel they, they can engage with this and, and do something about this kind of scary crisis that's on our hands. Right. Oh, no, fantastic. Yeah, that all sounds very promising. I suppose with COP27 coming up, it's very relevant. I mean, this is the 27th COP now, so you kind of feel we have a lot of science from 27 of these conventions, mm -hmm. but still this is a big problem that isn't being tackled. And so I suppose with climate change likely to be a big topic of conversation for people over the next few weeks, um, I guess I wanted to ask you kind of how can we uh, speak about climate change when you're not an expert because often the misinformation and uncertainty that kind of shrouds conversations around climate change can be quite frustrating. Yeah, totally. That's a great question. And, and I think always this moment coming up to the next COP is, is a huge moment for scientists and climate experts because they usually get shot to the limelight and they have a big role to play. Um, and and those heavily engaged in the moment will see their reams of reports that are coming out presenting new evidence on world of world is at um, with climate change or how we're tackling climate change. But I think it's important to also recognise that you, you really don't have to be an expert. You don't need a PhD in climate science to feel like you can you can talk about the crisis or feel like you have authority to talk about climate change. Yes, there are those people who are great. They have the knowledge, they have the evidence, and they have a real stake in how to influence these key policy decision makers. Um, but you can also, by being enthusiastic about the topic, worried about it, could have a really influential experience with with someone that you're talking to about climate change so for instance in back in 2019 we ran a, a project called talking climate and this was quite an experimental project where we worked with 500 people across europe and the aim of that was to support them in having three conversations about climate change with their family with their friends or even with people they meet at the bus stop and the idea behind this is that we've been kind of listening to our partners and, and colleagues and hearing that actually the hardest thing as a, as a non-expert specifically or the hardest person to talk to is, is usually someone you're most close to or, or in your like close bubble in yeah, your surrounding I, circle. I definitely feel like I've probably found that with, uh, with my own parents kind of trying to uh, speak to them about climate change when you know they, they kind of try to kind of say what they're doing and I'm like yes but you know what about kind of trying this or doing that 
um it, it is a very difficult conversation to breach exactly and it, and it's kind of trying to hit the right moment to do it as well when you're going to start to get serious and try not to be patronizing and and a lot of the barriers that we saw in the project that people said that stopped them from having these conversations with their friends and family was feeling like they didn't have enough information or they didn't have enough they didn't mm. feel expert enough um and the training was kind of like, like to bust that myth that really actually being interested in it having something that compels you about climate change something like I felt like October was very unseasonably warm. That worried me a lot. That's a conversational topic I could have with someone and say, how do you feel about the warm weather in October? And then bridge that into a conversation about climate change and maybe, oh, it's interesting that world leaders are, are all joining in Egypt in the next few weeks at, to, to talk about what the world's going to do about climate change. Um, so as part of that Talking Climate project, uh, we, we came up with some... I don't want to say ground rules, but I think with some working principles that could help you as an as a as a non-expert who may not be feeling that confident in talking about climate ch change yet, to really have a meaningful conversation with those around you about climate change. And I think the key starting point is always be authentic. And I think a lot of people are quite afraid of kind of sounding a bit campaigning when you're having a conversation about climate yeah, change I, I may be afraid to like yeah tell that other person what to do make them feel it, it's difficult and i've had this myself because people don't like to be lectured and i think that's exactly often yeah. how it feels when you try to speak to someone about climate change particularly when they perhaps don't know much about the subject matter or if you're trying to kind of influence some kind of change on them uh, it's very difficult to come across like that and um, even if that's not your intention Absolutely. And like, I hate being told off. Like, <laughs> it's a bear of mine. Like, I, I go into a bit of a huff and stop talking when someone tells me off. So like, I could totally empathise with someone if they feel like they're being threatened in that way, that it can it mm. completely switch off the conversation. So I think what, what we're learning is that, especially speaking with people who may have different values or different worldviews to you, is, is to be find a way to connect somehow. So like, and that might be putting yourself in that person's mm. shoes and getting to know their values. So yeah, so that kind of leads on to my um, my kind of next question. Uh, so um, what about if you're speaking to someone who's a climate skeptic or even a climate denier? Mm. Because it's very easy to get agitated and worked up uh, and then perhaps neither person is listening and it just becomes a bit of a shouting match. Uh, like yeah. it, it is kind of, the should you be trying to put yourself in their shoes or... Is it kind of a lost cause uh, with that group of people? Yeah. Do you think, I don't know, are there are there still full-blown climate sceptics out there? I don't know what the right term is, climate sceptics or well, climate you, denier. Well, I, I, I think... Mm, Maybe there's climate uncertainty, maybe skeptics too strong of a word. I think there are climate mm. skeptics. If you listen to our, our jingle, uh, we've got, um, oh, I've, I've forgotten his name, that's really bad, but Jeremy uh, Cor Piers Corbin. Uh, there's, oh, yes. there's a quote of him going, oh, it's a gravy train um, <laughs> uh, in, in an interview where he's kind of just putting a lot of doubt on climate change and basically saying yes. it's just people trying to profit off kind of this, this conspiracy theory. Of course. Yeah, yes, you still get those peddlers of, of misinformation on that. I would I would argue, though, we, we live in a time, thank God, where I feel like right now that that's certainly a minority voice mm. across 
political spectrums. They're still there, they're loud and they exist in echo chambers. But I think we can very much, I mean, there might be a time where we and experience someone who outrightly denies everything that we want to say. But I think my recommendation to those who, who do face those circumstances is don't feel like it's up to you to change their mind. Um, because that might not happen, especially in that in that moment, and be okay with that and look after yourself, especially if if the interaction could be quite negative or or cross into abusiveness. I think what's really worrying, and I and you definitely touched on it there, Torin, is 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 the impact of disinformation on people. And we're we're definitely seeing that right now, mm. especially coming up to COP, we're seeing powerful fossil fuel lobbies and political leaders. And what they're doing, instead of outrightly denying climate change, is that they're cherry-picking evidence that feels a false narrative by saying that net zero will make people colder and poorer, or that fracking for shale gas will actually bring down our energy bills. Mm. And what do you do as a non-expert then when when you know that's not true? <laughs> yeah. um, how do you engage with that conversation? Then, oh. And... and Yes, I would definitely say, like, go back to those talking climate recommendations that if you're speaking to someone who has read that in a newspaper or, or on Twitter or other forms of social media um, and is talking to you about that and is really trying to get to grips with understanding, you know, the true cost of the energy crisis and the, and the cost of living crisis as well, is that, you know, empathise with them. They are really easy narratives to get to grab hold of. Like, you need to have a pretty strong skill in being able to critique things that you see all the time. Mm. But as a communicator, you can help that person by kind of recognising where they're standing right now um, and without being patronising, kind of help them critique where they've found the source. Um, like we know there are reports out there, if, you, if you're particularly geeky like me, you'll go in and read them. Um, and we there is one that just came out by the International Institute for Sustainable Development, which has said, and there's evidence to back it up, that by redirecting all investments going into new fossil fuels over the next decade, you could fully finance wind and solar scale up. That will meet uh, the, the Paris Agreement goal of keeping to 1.5 degrees of warming. Wow. Now, you can delve into there and share that as much as you yeah. want, but you don't need to. Yeah, you could really I, I, just I you, stay we... values focused. Yeah, well, we'll uh, we'll include the uh, the link to the uh, the talk climate kind of recommendations from climate outreach in the uh, the excerpt for this podcast, so you can access it. Uh, I feel like we could also spend all day kind of talking about mis uh, misinformation and how to communicate it. But um, no, some really yeah. useful insights there. Thank you very much. Um, I just wanted to get one quick reaction for you before we kind of uh, close up this interview. Um, yeah. What do you think to Rishi Sunak's uh, U-turn? Uh, on going to COP now? I have a mix of emotions. <laughs> I think ultimately good. I think probably the reasons why he is going not good, but he will be there. He will be engaging in the process no matter what. If he's a sulking <laughs> bureaucrat, <laughs> engaging with the process, so be it. But I think the fact that he's there given maybe a short amount and it just being a visual representation of a British Prime Minister at, at the process, yes, it might be very shallow. But I think there has to be some good with the interactions that happen while he's there, even if they are what you might think meaningless mm. or, or quite shallow. 
Um, well, hopefully, but yeah, some, it's hopefully some wonderful climate scientists and communicators such as yourself can can rub off him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll send our team his way. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Well, um, thanks very much for taking the time to speak to us today, and hopefully, we'll have you on the pod again in the near future. Oh, please do. It was my pleasure. All right, thanks, Tara. Bye. Thank you. Really, really interesting insights from Tara to how to speak about climate change with your friends and family and colleagues. And yeah, how do you kind of tackle that when you're speaking to someone who is a climate sceptic or even yeah. a climate denier? Yeah. Uh, and I think one thing that really came across to me uh, was that active listening mm-hmm. where you've got to try and place yourself in the other person's shoes yeah because if you don't listen to what they've got to say they're not going to listen to what you have to say say. yeah 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 i think that that is critical um yeah and it's it's um it's a challenge to us all to figure out how to you know relay the same message it's an issue of framing you know it's how do we relay the same critical urgent message in ways that the people that we speak to would most relate to or understand. So how how do you, how to simplify, you know, um, a lot of this technical jargon and just say, you know, um, the environment, you know, the, the, the climate is changing. If we continue with certain, you know, sources of energy, it, you know, future generations will suffer. So we have to push governments to invest in new ways or new energy sources. You know, very simple, um, you know, um, sound bites that people can catch on to, but still communicating the message uh, about climate change yeah yeah no i couldn't agree more uh and on that kind of speaking up about this uh we want to hear from you so send us your thoughts ideas and questions to the green blob pod at gmail.com or tweet us at green blob underscore pod thank you for tuning in for another episode of the green blob and from zenzu and i bye 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 thank you Thank you for listening to another episode of the Green Blob Podcast. You are evidently very blobbish. Research for this podcast was done by myself, Torrin Whitehead, with special thanks to friends of the podcast, Zenzo, Tara and Neil for joining us today. Music was produced by William Lear and thank you to KCL Radio for making all this possible.